The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Okay, so before we begin, I need an honest person to tell me what time it is right now because I think my clock has been sabotaged up here. Uh, well, my watch says 11.13. This one says 11.21. I want to know who's doing that. Trying to trick the pastor. Trying to cut 10 minutes off the sermon. I know what you're doing. Sneaky, sneaky church people. Okay. I'm going with 1113. Uh, All right. Luke chapter 4. We continue our study in Luke's gospel. Uh, We find ourselves really in the second half of of Luke chapter 4, sort of uh, wrapping up what we began last week, uh, beginning in verse 14. So we'll begin reading there and just read to the end of the chapter. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town, in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. You know, we live in a time when there are all sorts of uh, problems that people face. It's not hard for you to 
to, uh, to look around the world, uh, to look at social media, to look at the news, and to, to realize that we live in a world where people deal with all sorts of problems, where there are, are problems and difficulties and challenges and all sorts of chaos. There uh, are political problems. It's not hard to identify those constantly, political problems. Uh, whoever is in power, they're the worst, and whoever uh, is in power is, is awful, and uh, somebody else would do much better, and it doesn't matter who that person is or who those are that are in power. There's always political turmoil and po- po- sort of political upheaval. Uh, there's always chaos and trouble and problems in the world of politics. There's, there's social trouble and social chaos, and people face all sorts of social problems. We, we hear about those pretty regularly as well. They dominate the, the news. Uh, we hear about social justice problems, and we hear about social inequity problems, and we hear how uh, society needs to be equalized and that, that it's not fair that people are, are getting the short end of the stick socially, and, and these are problems that need to be resolved. It's not hard to look around and see that that there are moral problems that that culture around us faces, that that there are are evil things that people do and and evil things that people are the the recipients of. It's a world full of troubles and a world full of problems. And and yet, none of the things that really gain the headlines in the news, that really dominate the news cycle or dominate social media, are the worst problem that people have. The worst problem that people have, according to the, the scriptures, is sin. That is the worst problem anybody has. We might have political problems, we may have social problems, we may have moral problems, we may have work problems, we may have family problems or relational problems, but none of those problems that we face are the worst problems that we have. The worst problem that any human being has is that they are sinners separated from God. And because of their sin, they'll inherit eternal damnation apart from God forever in a place called hell. That is the worst problem that any human being has. And it's the problem that every human being comes into the world having. It doesn't get much airtime on social media. It doesn't get much airtime on the news. Uh, other problems tend to rise to the surface. But that is the worst problem that people have. And it is the very problem that the Messiah has come to resolve. And when we come into Luke chapter 4, we begin to see in Christ's ministry, right at the outset, as he goes into the the synagogue at Nazareth, and he opens up the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61, and he delivers a message to very religious people in a Jewish synagogue. We begin to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Messiah has come to do. The reality that he has come to resolve the worst problem that human beings have, the problem of sin. And it's nowhere near the top of the radar for the crowd that he speaks to in the synagogue on that day. They're thinking about other problems, and they're thinking about other solutions. And as he attempts to reorient their thinking and to enlighten their minds to the reality of what they need most and what they lack, though they think they have, they don't respond well at all. Just as a reminder, here in the text, we've got Jesus who's just come from uh, a season of ministry in Capernaum. Luke doesn't record that for us. Luke takes us straight from the temptation narrative in the, in the desert, the wilderness, and he brings us to the synagogue in Nazareth. But in between there is about a year of time, perhaps a year and a half, depending on, on who you trust to, 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 to identify the chronology, a, a, a period of time where he's doing ministry in Capernaum, in another area, in some other areas around that, uh, that part of Galilee. And it's 
then that he comes here, as Luke records in, in chapter 4, to Nazareth, which is his hometown. He comes back to his hometown where everybody knows him, where he grew up, where people would have recognized his face, where he would have been able to see the people that he, he went to school with as a kid, or he went to synagogue with as a kid. He would have come to his home church there in Nazareth, the synagogue where faithful Jews came to gather and study from the Old Testament Torah scrolls. And he gathers with God's people, making corporate worship a priority, which we spent most of our time last week really sort of talking about and, and dealing with. But he comes to worship, and he doesn't just come to worship, he participates in worship. He's got a reputation at this point. People know, they've heard about his ministry, they've heard about the things he's been teaching, they've heard about some of the miracles that he's done in other places. And so he's gained some level of notoriety by the time he gets back home to his home church. And, and as was the custom, a, a visiting rabbi would often be asked to, to stand up and participate by reading and, and having something to say about the reading from the Old Testament. And so Jesus is asked to do this. He comes back to the synagogue. They ask him to participate, and so he uh, obliges. And we're told in verse 17 that uh, he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Of course, you know that in Old Testament worship, they didn't have a bound Bible like you have. They had the Old Testament books written on, on scrolls, and they were kept very meticulously, and they would be pulled out by the, the ruler of the synagogue. And they, that, that's who would have handed Jesus the scroll, and he handed him uh, for that day the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus opens up the scroll, or he unrolls the scroll, as Luke tells us, and he finds his way to the passage that he wants to read on this particular occasion. Out of all the texts that he could have chosen in Isaiah, he finds himself in the place that we know of is Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah didn't have chapters and verses when Jesus unrolled the scroll. He just knew where this text was. And so he goes there and he reads this passage that uh, Luke records in, in verses 18 and 19, which is nearly identical to Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Uh, with a little bit of a shade from Isaiah 58, uh, verse 6, and perhaps he read that as well. But what's interesting is when we look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, uh, it, I think I have a, a slide for you on that. Let's just read what Isaiah records, and let's read what Jesus reads, and let's see if you notice any differences. This is what Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. All right, that's Isaiah. Now let's go to what Luke records that Jesus reads on this occasion in Nazareth. Jesus unrolls the scroll and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you notice any differences in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and what Jesus reads on this occasion from Isaiah 61? Just nod your head this way if you notice any differences. That way I know you're still able to move and still awake. 
Well, there are a couple of differences. I won't highlight them all, but there's one that you absolutely need to notice. Jesus does not read the whole passage. He stops short of the whole passage in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. In particular, there's a part of that text that he stops short of and does not read. A sentence that reads this, and the day of vengeance of our God. He stops right before that phrase and he rolls up the scroll and he concludes his reading. Why would Jesus stop short at that point? Why would he omit that part of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and not read it on this occasion in Nazareth? Well, there's a reason. There's a reason. Because as soon as he rolls up the scroll, he's going to declare to them that what he's just read has been fulfilled in their hearing. And that part of Isaiah's prophecy is going to be fulfilled by Messiah. But at the time in which Jesus reads this passage in Nazareth, it has not yet been fulfilled. You see, there's a, a, a situation that Jesus is fully aware of here that his audience is not. And it's that this, Isaiah's messianic prophecy, just like many Old Testament messianic prophecies, often have a split fulfillment. And by a split fulfillment, I mean that the prophet sees something that Messiah is going to do, but the prophet doesn't fully understand chronologically how that's going to all play out in history. And so sometimes the prophets will give us a prophecy that's all in one setting, but oftentimes that prophecy is fulfilled at two different points in history. And that's what we find here in this prophecy of Isaiah. It's a prophecy of the Messiah that is a split fulfillment. The first part, the part that Jesus reads, is fulfilled in Christ at his coming, his first coming. That second part that he omits, the, the consummation of the day of vengeance of God, is going to be fulfilled at his second coming his return. And so Jesus stops short right there because he knows he hasn't come to initiate the day of God's vengeance. That's coming when he returns the second time, when he comes with the armies of heaven and he comes to judge the world in justice. It's on that day that the day of God's vengeance will come to men. The day of God's retribution for sin will come to humankind on that day. But on the day Jesus reads it, it's not that time yet. And so he stops short and he rolls up the scroll and he doesn't read that section of Isaiah's prophecy. The day of vengeance of the Lord is yet to come. But the day of God's grace, the day of salvation, has come. And it's been initiated with his coming. Now, you have to understand that the Jews who've gathered in this particular synagogue on this day are, are likely just typical Jews of the first century. They had this expectation of Messiah that he's going to come and he's going to restore national Israel to all of its uh, historic glory. That all of those good things that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 61, that the Messiah is going to come and do all of that for Israel, and the day of God's vengeance is going to be what he brings to the Gentiles and to the unbelievers. They saw themselves as inheriting all of the good that Messiah brings and all of the, the bad and all of the vengeance and all of the judgment Messiah is going to pour out on the Gentiles and on Israel's enemies. And so their expectation is when Messiah shows up that he's going to bring Israel back to its glory and that he's going to fulfill all of the good promises for the Messiah to Israel all in a national sort of sense historically at that time and he's going to bring God's judgment on all unbelievers. They have no concept of a, of a potential split fulfillment. They have no concept that Messiah is coming to bring salvation, not just to Israel, but also to any who believe from every tribe and nation and tongue. 
But they're about to be confronted with this reality and they're not going to respond very well to it when they understand it. The portions of the text that Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 describe his saving work that he's come to do. And they form for us really a preview of the gospel, if you will, in the Old Testament. A clear description of the mission of the Messiah, what he has actually come to do. In fact, we find early on in the beginning, it uses the term good news or gospel. Come to, to proclaim good news or to bring, proclaim the gospel to the poor. And so Jesus speaks here. He uses this, this Old Testament prophecy to describe what he's come to do in bringing the gospel to mankind. And he uses some metaphors that he captures from Isaiah's prophecy. He uses metaphors that describe his saving work that he's come to, to, to bring. He's come to bring uh, sight to the blind. He's come to bring uh, a freedom to captives. He's come to, to, to bring uh, good news, uh, gospel to the poor. He's come to bring freedom uh, to captives. Those are all different ways of describing the worst problem people have. Sin, it blinds us. It makes us captives. It makes us poor spiritually. And it binds us in ways that we can't free ourselves. But as we think about this text, we do need to ask a question before we walk through the details of it. When Jesus speaks of the poor, and he speaks of the oppressed, and he speaks of the blind, and he speaks of captives here, is he describing his ministry as being one that has come to resolve those things in sort of a physical way? Or is he describing his ministry as one that's come to resolve those problems in a spiritual sort of a way? Is he talking about the ministry that he brings as one that's primarily social and physical? Or is it one that's primarily spiritual? This has been a tremendous debate historically throughout the church because there's a whole world of theology called liberation theology. Maybe you've heard of that before that has flown out of, and to some degree, this text that would argue to you that here Jesus is making the case that he's come to bring primarily social liberation to the poor and the oppressed. And a whole world of theology has developed that is actually quite prominent right now in our culture, in our day, that argues that that's exactly what this text is about. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to give you at least some, some uh, sort of sense of what this is. One author describes uh, liberation theology as this, the idea that true followers of Jesus must work toward a just society to bring about social and political change and align themselves with the working class. That that's what Jesus is articulating here according to liberation theologians. That that's the ministry that Jesus has come to do and that's the ministry his people should be about. John Frame, another uh, theological writer, says it this way. He says the theology of liberation is a combination of Marxist philosophy with a certain biblical motif attached to it. It argues that we should reconstruct the whole, Christian, the whole of Christian theology by seeing it through the axis of oppressor and oppressed. Liberation theology shows up in a lot of different ways in our culture. It shows up in, the, in, in black liberation theology. It shows up in women's liberation theology. It, it began in the 50s and the 60s, largely in South America, with a different kind of, of liberation theology even there. And it's morphed in various cultures over time. But it's this idea that, that the gospel is really about uh, the oppressor and the oppressed and freeing people from the social problems and the social ills that they have, that they deal with, and making life more equitable for people here. And we have to ask the question, is that what Jesus is talking about in Nazareth? 
Is that what Isaiah is speaking of when he thinks of the Messiah's ministry? Is that how Jesus is casting and carrying out his own ministry as the Messiah? In fact, that's not at all what Jesus has in mind here. And it's very clear. His audience would have loved that kind of a message, by the way. His audience in the synagogue would have embraced that kind of a message because they saw themselves as the oppressed by the Romans. And they were looking for someone to become a a political and military uh, leader who would lead them out of that kind of oppression. They would have embraced that. They certainly wouldn't have tried to kill him. That's not what Jesus' ministry was about. Yes, there was a physical and social aspect to his ministry. He did, in fact, heal blind people. He did, in fact, heal lame people. He did, in fact, in fact, the next passage in Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus walk into a situation where a man is absolutely oppressed and held captive by a a demon. He's demon-possessed, and Jesus sets this man free. So there is a sense in which his ministry is marked by, by doing some of this, but that's never the issue of his ministry, and it's not the focus. He does those things largely out of compassion for people because he has a broken heart to see people in such condition. But he does them largely to point them to the reality that as he resolves these physical and social problems that they have, to point to the reality that that's not the worst problem they have. The worst problem they have is the problem of sin that's enslaved them and damned their soul. And that's primarily what he's come to resolve. The man that's going to get healed by a demon in the next vignette that Luke gives us has a worse problem. He has a soul that's impoverished and oppressed and captive and blinded to true salvation. And he needs that problem resolved worse than he needs the demon resolved. Jesus' focus was on the condition of men's souls, not their human experience and their culture. And the metaphors he uses here really describes the desperate condition of sinners from a variety of different angles. And, and he uses them in order to depict the utter hopelessness of being trapped in sin. To, to, to show them that they have absolutely no resources to save themselves. That their only hope is what he brings. The salvation that comes from him. And so he begins to describe it using Isaiah's words. He says he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. The word translated poor here is a word that, that literally means to cringe or to, to shrink back or to, 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 to cower. It's not, the, it's not the word that we used of the, that would have been used of the working poor in Jesus' days. It's the, it's the word used for a common beggar on the street who would shrink back and cower in the shadows of, of, of the culture. Someone who's utterly destitute. And without resources, who's utterly dependent on somebody else to meet their needs. And he uses this metaphor to describe the spiritual condition of everybody who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior. Who hasn't by faith and placed their trust in him. Everyone who's in that condition is spiritually poor. And the spiritually poor are those who recognize that they have absolutely nothing in themselves to commend themselves before God. Who understand that they have no resources that can purchase their way into God's favor. That can overcome their sin. They can't buy their way in. They recognize they're utterly destitute when it comes for the kind of currency they need to save their own soul. The Bible describes the poor like this in various ways. In the Psalms, it talks of them as as the brokenhearted or the crushed in spirit. 
If we flipped a few pages over in Luke to chapter 18, we find a tax collector who enters the temple, who's standing in the very back of the temple, feeling completely unworthy to even be in the building, who lifts his eyes towards heaven and he beats his chest and all he can, all he can manage to say is, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. He knows he's utterly poor spiritually and his life has purchased absolutely nothing to commend himself before God. And his only hope is that God would be merciful to him because he's utterly poor and destitute spiritually. The spiritually poor are those who acknowledge their own spiritual bankruptcy. Those who understand that that their their moral and their religious activity cannot purchase their way into heaven. Those who understand that they can never be good enough to earn God's favor. Those who look themselves in the mirror and realize that they are completely incapable of saving themselves. Those are the spiritually poor to whom he speaks. It's the opposite of the Laodicean believers from Revelation chapter 3. Not that long ago, we worked through the first couple of chapters of of Revelation, and we looked at the Laodicean church in verse 17 of chapter 3. Uh, The Lord describes this church this way. He says, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They thought themselves rich because physically they were. But spiritually, he says, you're poor. You have nothing. You have nothing. It's the poor in spirit that Jesus came to save. It's to the poor in spirit that the Messiah has come to proclaim good news, to proclaim his gospel. Material poverty does often, by the way, provide fertile soil for the true good news of Jesus Christ because people who lack resources tend to more readily realize their desperate needs spiritually. Those who are materially wealthy find that their wealth often produces a barrier to receiving the good news. Wealthy people tend to think of themselves as self-sufficient and needing no help, like the Laodicean believers. So there is a connection between the physical poor and the spiritual poor. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Messiah, who stands in the Nazareth synagogue day, that day, has come to save those who are spiritually bankrupt. It's not a bad thing to recognize that you're spiritually poor. In fact, it's a requirement to salvation. You have to come to terms with the reality that you cannot save yourself before you can look to Christ, the Messiah, to save you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. The good news of the gospel is that the Messiah came to save the spiritually poor. But beyond that, he came to to proclaim liberty to captives. Lost sinners are are not just spiritually poor, they're also captives. They're described this way all throughout the, the Bible. That they, 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 they think they're free, but in reality, they're enslaved. That's the condition that humanity enters the world. People that you know who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they largely think of themselves as free individuals who do whatever they want. The Bible declares that while they think that, they're in fact deceived. The reality is that they're captives, that they're enslaved, and they don't even realize it. They're captives to death. The book of Romans says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is eternal death. Lost men live their lives with an inescapable death sentence over their heads. 
And it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, how successful they are, how popular they become here. Eternal death is always just one heartbeat away. There's no way to escape it. The Bible describes uh, the, the man and the woman who doesn't know Christ as captive to sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says, listen, you think you're free, but you're not. You're a slave to somebody, and you're either a slave to sin, which is leading you toward death, or you're a slave to righteousness, which leads you toward life through Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a what? It's a slave to sin. Lost people largely think they do whatever they want to do. They think they live and make free moral choices. They have no concept of the reality. They're actually pawns in a spiritual war. Jesus confronted some religious hypocrites one day near the temple, and he said to them this, you do the will of your father, the devil. Confronting them with the reality that though they fancied themselves religious, they were actually slaves to Satan was manipulating them to do his will. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, describes lost people as slaves. Listen to what it says. It describes the snare of the devil. People who are lost as being captured in the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. Lost people are spiritually poor, but they're also spiritually captive and don't even realize it. But the good news of the gospel is that the Messiah has come. He's come to set free those who were spiritually captive. He's come to, to liberate those who are enslaved to sin, who are enslaved to death, who are enslaved to Satan. He's come to set them free through faith in him. And he's come to do that by paying the price for their sin. He's come to do that by dying in their place on the cross and offering forgiveness full and free to anybody who will confess their sin, repent, and trust in him. He's come to set people free. That's what he's come to do. But he's also to come to give sight to the blind. Another metaphor Isaiah uses that Jesus captures here is this idea of lostness being described as blindness. The Bible uses this illustration throughout. It describes people who don't know Christ as, as blind. Another way it describes the same thing is, is being in darkness. If you're in darkness, complete, have you ever been in complete darkness? Have you ever been somewhere where the lights are out and there's no light, like literally you cannot see your hand in front of your face? Have you ever been in that situation? really disorienting if you've ever been there. Uh, it really is. And, and, and you can't see anything. You're, you're effectively blind. And that's the illustration that's used throughout the text of Scripture to describe lost people, to people who are spiritually blind. They don't, they're, they're blind to the truth. They can't see the truth about God. They can't see the truth about themselves or about sin or about death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The crowd that Jesus stands before in this Nazareth synagogue is blind, and they don't realize it. They think they can see. But the God of this world had blinded their minds. They couldn't see the truth of who he was and what he'd come to do. 
But the good news of the gospel is this. The Messiah has come to open the eyes of the blind, to shine light into the darkness that men walk in with his truth, with his truth. And he's also come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word oppressed here in this text is a word that means essentially overwhelmed by painful circumstances. It's a word that, that describes uh, people who are recipients of abuse. They're beaten down, taken advantage of. The kinds of people who've been beaten down and devastated by the hard, the hard realities of life. They're people who are oppressed and beaten down and taken advantage of. And Jesus comes to say, hey, listen, I've come uh, for people just like that. People who are oppressed, not just physically, but people who are oppressed spiritually as well. It comes to bring grace and compassion to all the abused and the wounded. And he says to them things like Matthew 11, verse 28 and following. He says to people who are oppressed and abused, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm, I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus the Messiah comes to oppressed people and he says to them, I'm what you need. I'm what you need. I may not solve all the oppression around you right now, but I'll bring into your, into your life a salvation that frees you and a salvation that assures you that one day all oppression will cease and that the day of salvation is coming. So he opens the eyes of the blind he sets at liberty those who were abused and downtrodden. And he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. That's what the last text says there. Simply meaning the day of salvation has arrived. It's an allusion back to the Old Testament uh, year of jubilee. We won't spend time with that. You can look it up on your own. But in, in quoting that, he's simply saying the day of salvation has arrived. The day of salvation has arrived. And he rolls up the scroll. And as he rolls up the scroll, all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are looking square at him. He's got everyone's attention, and they're wondering, what is he going to say next? How is he going to exposit this text? And he does it in a pretty remarkable way. He says to them very clearly, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All these things that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, that he's going to do, all these things that Isaiah said that the, that, the, that, that the Messiah would do when he came, well, I'm him, and I'm here, and it's real, and it's now. An astounding thing to say. Here is a hometown kid standing up in the synagogue saying that Messiah that, that Isaiah prophesied about, that we've all studied in our synagogue classes, I and him. Now, you would have thought that would have generated some level of controversy and some level of response. And it does generate some sort of a response, but it's not the right response. They're mumbling among themselves, and they're, they're, they're amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And they're saying to them, each other, isn't that Joseph's kid? Isn't that the carpenter's kid? And they're trying to reconcile this because he's familiar. And the old saying is, familiarity breeds contempt right and so there is a level of that going on here or the other saying all experts are from out of town right the person from town doesn't know anything you have to bring in someone outside to be an expert and so Jesus understands that they're not, they're not getting it 
and he understands that they're not believing it. And he's reading his crowd, and he knows by the power of the Holy Spirit some of the things that they're thinking in the interior of their heart and their mind. And so he wants to clarify exactly what he means by the gospel and the good news that he's come to proclaim. He's given them the grace part of it in Isaiah's prophecy. Now he's going to explain to them how offensive the gospel can actually be, and they're going to get that. You see, the good news of the gospel is good news to the poor. It's good news to the spiritually oppressed. It's good news to the enslaved. It's good news to the spiritually blind. But it's incredibly offensive to the prideful and to the self-sufficient and to the spiritually entitled. And that describes this crowd. And so Jesus anticipates their questions, and he takes them down a little trip down memory lane. It's always nice to take a trip down memory lane, isn't it? It's always good to get with with church people and rehearse the Bible. And so that's what Jesus does. He understands they're not understanding the gospel. He understands they're not believing in them. And he begins to anticipate their thoughts and objections. And so in verses 23 and 24, he quotes two general proverbs that were widespread in Judaism that he knows are sort of descriptive of what they're thinking at the moment. The first one is, he says... Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus says to them, okay, I get what you're thinking. I get what you're thinking. You're thinking all this, uh, all this Messiah stuff is nice, that the Messiah, and in your mind, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to reestablish the glory of Israel. And you're thinking, okay, this is nice, Jesus. You say you're the Messiah. You say you're the one who's going to come restore all this. Well, we heard about all the miracles you did at Capernaum. Why don't you do some of those here to show us that you're really the guy? And then maybe we'll believe. One thing you need to understand about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and all throughout and to the end, he never does miracles to impress people. His ministry is not a a traveling carnival. And he knew something that's true then and it's true now. For a hardened heart, there's no amount of miracles that'll be effective. They'll always want one more. No matter how much evidence you provide the hardened heart, the hardened heart always wants one more piece of evidence. So he refuses. And he says to them, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now he's talking to people from his hometown. And he's reminding them that Israel, their nation, has a very long history of rejecting and abusing her prophets. As an example, he points to two Old Testament stories, a little trip down memory lane. He says, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, a very familiar Old Testament story to first century Jews. And let's go back in, into the time, during the times of Elijah the prophet. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 17, you can flip there if you'd like to do so, um, if you just want to get some exercise for your fingers, uh, flip to 1 Kings chapter 17. And for the sake of time, we won't read through the entire text. I'll just give you a summary, but you, you can begin verse 17 and, and read, uh, excuse me, the verse uh, uh, 7 and 8, and, uh, and you can read that on your own later on. But the context of 1 Kings 17 and this whole thing about Elijah is this. When we jump into Israel's history in this time of history, one of the things that's going on is the nation of Israel is in abject rebellion against God. They've rejected God, and they've rejected the prophets that he sent. In power in Israel are some notorious people by the names of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. No doubt you've heard of those folks, right? Uh, If nothing else, Jezebel's name still 
sort of lingers today as a description of a woman who is not particularly virtuous or kind, right? I suspect when all of you named your precious little girls, uh, nobody went through that process of naming that precious little child and thought, why don't we call her Jezebel? Because even now, somebody knows that's just not a good name to name your kid. Because this woman was notoriously evil. Responsible in part for instituting the worship of Baal in Israel. And, and it was a season of dark days of apostasy for God's people. And so because of that, God had brought a judgment on his people because of their abandonment of him and their chasing after idols. So he brought a judgment, and that judgment was a famine, a drought which led to a famine. He shut the heavens up for rain. There was no rain, therefore no crops grew. Therefore, everybody was hungry. There was no food. And it was God's judgment. And so what God does in the midst of that through the prophet Elijah in chapter 17 of 1 Kings is he sends Elijah to a woman who is a widow in a town called Zarephath. And Isaiah goes to this woman's house and she is literally about to eat the last morsel of food that she has and she's going to die after that. That's her problem. It's a real problem. She has no food. She's going to eat her last meal and she's going to wait to die. And God sends Elijah there. And Elijah, by the power of God, works a miracle for this woman by causing her flour jar from which she made her bread to miraculously, continuously refill itself. Would that not be the coolest thing ever? Like you think you use the whole jar and you put it up and you come back the next day and there it is with flour again? Miraculously replenishes this woman's supply so that she never runs out of food. So she survives the famine. It was a miracle. And, and so Jesus takes them back to 1 Kings. He says, you remember, you remember in, the, in the famine during that time? And you remember uh, the, the, the drought and how everybody was starving? And you remember how all that was going on? Well, well, take note of this. During that time, there were lots and lots of widows in Israel who were on their last meal as well. And God sends Elijah to none of them. But instead, he sends him to a widow, a Gentile widow, in Zarephath, which is in Sidon, which was Jezebel's hometown. And so the point of bringing this up is he wants to remind them that in a very important point in Israel's history, God chose to save a Gentile woman of faith who recognized her spiritual poverty and her spiritual blindness and her spiritual captivity and placed her trust in God's provision. And he bypassed and chose not to save many, many Israelite widows who were hardened in their rebellion. Wait a minute, Jesus, this is getting uncomfortable. What are you trying to say? In case they didn't get it, he said, well, what about another time in Israel's history? 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman the leper. Naaman was a Syrian. The Syrians were Israelites, neighbors to the north, who they hated, who oppressed Israel in various ways over time in history, often militarily oppressed them. They were their enemies. They hated the Syrians who were to the north. And this man was not only a Syrian, but he was a military leader of the Syrian army, which was attacking Israel. And on top of that, he was a leper. I mean, you couldn't get much worse of a man than Naaman to an Israelite of that day. 
And in 2 Kings chapter 5, we find the story of Naaman the leper. I'll read a little bit of this. Naaman, the commander of the army of the Lord, of the, of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory over Syria. Uh, to Syria, not over Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord uh, were with the prophet who's in Samaria. That's Elijah, by the way. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel with you. So he went, and he took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I've sent you, a Naaman, my servant, that you might cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends, me, uh, sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking to quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let the man come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. And you can read the rest of the story. Naaman goes to Elisha. And Elisha says, all right, you want to be healed? Here's what you do. Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Naaman resists at first, but then he goes in obedience to the river, and he washes himself, and his, his leprosy is immediately cleansed. Immediately cleansed. a miraculous thing to cleanse leprosy. There were lots and lots of people who struggled with leprosy in the days of Naaman. And Jesus brings up this story and he reminds the people in the synagogue on that day, he says, remember that guy Naaman? There were lots and lots of lepers in Israel. And guess who Elijah did not, Elisha did not get sent to? The Israelite lepers. But who did God send Elisha to? Naaman, the Syrian army guy and he healed him why in the world does Jesus bring these two vignettes up from history he brings them up because he wants to make two very clear points to his audience and they are simply these points number one Messiah's salvation is not exclusively for Israel and it never has been Messiah's salvation is not exclusively for Israel and it never has been. The good news of the gospel, Jesus says, that I've come to proclaim is for people who will humble themselves and admit their spiritual poverty and admit their spiritual blindness and abandon their self-effort and look to Christ to save him and obey him. That's who salvation comes to. doesn't matter if they're a Jew or a Gentile. Salvation comes not exclusively to Israel, but to anybody who will recognize these things and submit to the Messiah. And secondarily, he wants them to understand that Israelites who refuse to do this will be literally shut out of the kingdom of God. He wants them to understand painfully clearly that if you're counting on the fact that you're an Israelite to get you into the kingdom, you're woefully deceived. Because salvation that I bring comes only to those 
who humble themselves and admit their spiritual blindness and poverty and oppression and abandon every self-effort and abandon their own religious works and look to me to save them by grace. And if you refuse to do that, even though you're an Israelite, you're shut out of the kingdom. And the implication is that all of you in this synagogue fit that second category. You're prideful, spiritual hypocrites who think you're rich but you're poor, who think you can see but you're blind, who think you're free but you're a slave, who think you're a shoe-in for the kingdom because you're an Israelite and you have no idea that you're headed for the kingdom of darkness. And the only way that you can be saved is to make yourself like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, the Syrian leper. He couldn't have said anything more offensive to that crowd. And you know it by their reaction. They go from saying, wow, those are gracious words that he's saying. Isn't that Joseph's kid? To literally turning in a moment into a, to a lynch mob, running him out of the church, out to the precipice of a hill, with the full intention of throwing him off. They were filled with rage, the text tells us. They tried to kill him. But Jesus passed through their midst unharmed. I don't know, I'd like to know how he did it. He doesn't tell us how they did it. I want to ask Luke when I get to heaven, or Jesus, how'd you do that? A lynch mob trying to throw you off the mountain it wasn't his time and nobody could touch him until it was his time but the message that he gave to the synagogue that takes an important message and you know we're not Israelites and we're not meeting in a synagogue we're we're Americans who are in an American Christian church and and you might say well you know what maybe that message doesn't apply much to us maybe it's just an Israelite message well it's not because in our day just like in Jesus day in first century there are people who look to their own religious works and their own religious heritage to save them. They think, not today because you're an Israelite, but they think I grew up in a Christian family or I grew up going to church or I, I've been a good person. I've tried to live a Christian moral code all my life. They think because of those things that they're a shoe-in for the kingdom of God. And they look at themselves in the mirror and they think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as some people. And I've, I've been pretty moral and I go to church and I do, I pray and I believe in God and, and so forth. Surely I'm going to be in heaven. And the message that Jesus delivered to that synagogue is the same message that he delivers to people today who think such things. That if that's how you're thinking, you're blind and you don't know it. You're poor and you think you're rich. You're enslaved, but you think you're free. And your only hope is that God would open your eyes to your true need to humble yourself, abandon your own religious works, abandon your own self-effort, Realize that the best you have to offer on your very best day is nothing but filthy rags and it earns you no credit with God whatsoever as far as your salvation is concerned. That your only hope is to recognize that you're poor spiritually and you can't buy your way in. To recognize that you're blind and you can't see it for yourself, that you need the enlightening work of the Spirit of God to help you see the truth. 
and to recognize that what you need more than anything is to humble yourself, confess your sin, and look to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to save you. Ask him to forgive you. Commit to him that you're going to turn your life, you're going to repent. You're going to walk away from a life of rebellion and arrogance and pride. And you're going to turn toward him, committing to a life of righteousness to the best of your ability by the power of the Spirit of God. That is the only way that a man or a woman can be saved. It's the only way you can be a Christian. That's it. That is the gospel. It is the good news that the Messiah came to declare. And I trust many in the room have heard that before and already responded in faith. But I suspect that there might be people here in this room who are just like people in that synagogue who thought that their heritage was enough or that their religious actions were enough. Thought that going to church or praying or believing in God in some general sense was enough. You need to hear the message of Jesus today. It's not enough. Your only hope is what he's accomplished on the cross for you. Trusting in him to save you because you cannot save yourself. People are going to respond to that one of two ways. You either respond with joy, embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, worshiping him as God in human flesh who died in your place, or that message is going to make you angry like the people in that synagogue on that day and further harden your heart. I pray that you're the the former and not the latter. Lord Jesus, we come together in this place and we study your word regularly. And yet, Lord, we need a reminder of the gospel regularly. Because in our context, there are many who are tempted to place their faith in their heritage spiritually, in their good works, their religious activity in some vague belief in you thinking that that's enough and even those who know you Lord Jesus who, who are saved we find ourselves tempted to fall back into patterns of living where we practically live like we believe those things We need to be reminded that our only hope is you. That we are no better off than Naaman, the leper, who had no ability to heal his own leprosy. Or a poor widow in Zarephath who was on her last meal and about to die, apart from your sovereign work. That's who we are. And our only hope is, is that you would do for us what we have no ability to do for ourselves. And Lord Jesus, you've done that. From our standpoint in history, we know what happened. You lived a perfect life and you gave your life on a Roman cross where you shed your blood for our sins, paying the price that we owed. That by placing our faith in you and what you've done, we can be forgiven, redeemed, saved. Become your children not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. I pray if there's anyone in the room this morning who's never come to that place in their life where they've done that, that they would look to you and be saved right now. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you'd never, you'd help us to never lose the wonder 
of the good news of the gospel that you brought, that you've done for us what we could never do for our own selves, and that we would worship you eternally for that and live with an abiding gratitude that spills over in everything we do and say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.